going to ask you all to turn this morning to the book of Mark, chapter 11. Mark, chapter 11. In a few moments, we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. The, the believability of news reports that we hear is important. I would say modern journalism is at a crisis point when a dwindling percentage of the public can trust the news media. That's especially problematic in an election season, which we are entering once again, when feelings and passions run especially high and people believe that the future of the nation is at stake. And during those times especially, the news reporting itself often becomes the topic of the conversation. What was the source of their information? Are they reporting both sides fairly? What was, the re- was the reporting fair? Is the story believable? The true story of Jesus' life in ministry is so central to the theme of the scriptures that the Lord chose four reporters. They're actually called evangelists, bearers of good news, uh, to tell the story. But all too often, the world is more accepting of lies than it is towards the testimony of truth. If there had been only one gospel account, people would say, how can we trust this? The story was made up by just one man. If all four accounts had been nearly identical, which they're not, that would defeat the purpose. But if so, they would, they would say that they copied from each other. And that is exactly, by the way, what they say anyway. Since all four accounts are different, looking at the story from a different perspective, they try to claim that they all disagree with each other and contradict each other. So no matter how you slice it, and even with four separate perspectives on the story, most of the world is still unwilling to believe. Nevertheless, God did ordain that four evangelists would tell the story. So it might be worth considering which events made such a deep impression on all four Uh, that they all wrote about those events. Now, other than the events of the Passion Week, which would be, of course, the crucifixion and the events immediately surrounding it, there are only two events uh, that are written about by all four of the Gospel writers. One of them is the feeding of the 5,000, and the other is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which will be our passage for today. It happens to be a day that celebrated around the world as Palm Sunday. Uh, I tend to be a little less critical of these traditional Christian holidays uh, as they are celebrated worldwide. Um, I'm less critical probably now than I used to be. Martin Luther actually had enough respect for the ancient church calendar uh, because he respected those who came before him and established it. And so he chose, rather than throw it all out, to teach the significance of its observances. And that's for better or for worse. I'm not saying that we should keep the calendar or that we shouldn't. I'm just saying that I understand that there are different perspectives on it. In fact, sometimes things that have been criticized by evangelicals, we actually can find out that there are reasonable arguments for why it was set up that way in ancient times when much of the historical uh, evidence that they used is now obscure or Uh, in some cases, lost. So let's talk about the triumphal entry and its significance. 
The significance of the triumphal entry is especially important for us to grasp because it's another issue, in my humble opinion, that's been confused by the dispensational system of belief that is still so mainstream that millions of people carry dispensational baggage in their thinking without even knowing it. Now that system, which says that Jesus offered the kingdom to the Jews at his first coming, but they rejected it, and so he put the offer on hold until he returns a second time, that belief system would make the triumphal entry to be of limited significance, primarily just symbolic significance, uh, because they believe that the actual coronation is still yet in the future. But the scripture uh, teaches, and I believe this, and I've gone through it in some detail in previous sermons, that Jesus has already been anointed and proclaimed king. It was declared prophetically in Psalm 2, when the Lord says, Yet I have set my king on Mount Zion. I believe it was fulfilled historically in all gospel accounts, particularly in the account of the triumphal entry. Consider that um, when John saw the new Jerusalem, he described it as not being built on the new heavens, and the, or on the new earth, rather. He sees it coming down from heaven, indicating that it's already there, and in fact, that the glorified Christ already reigns in heaven. As the scripture says, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Now, for us who believe these things, passage that we're about to read is very powerful and significant. Uh, it is a proclamation of Christ, our King, who has already been pro proclaimed and coronated. So with that introduction, let us read um, Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Please follow along as I read these verses. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied in which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to him, said to them, What are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees. By the way, John uh, tells us there that those are palm branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now with the passage that we have just read, uh, we've come almost to the end of Jesus' public ministry. For most of that ministry, Jesus has spent most of his time and energy preaching in the remote regions, the more remote regions. Galilee and the northern regions beyond it, even to the Gentile cities of Tyre and Sidon, 
Samaria, the former capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, it was now populated by a mixed race of Jew and Gentile, and therefore it was completely shunned by the Jews. Perea and Decapolis were regions to the east of Jordan, where many Gentiles dwelled. It's very interesting when you consider how much time Jesus spent ministering in those remote regions, particularly considering that they were areas where uh, large numbers of Gentiles dwelled. That tells us something about what was about to come. Concentrating his ministry in those places, Jesus was carrying out the mission that is described in the reading that we read responsively this morning. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. And then he goes on to say, For as the earth brings forth its bud, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations, not just Israel any longer, but all the nations. We are actually told in Matthew chapter 4, as Jesus began to minister, uh, that it, all of this was done, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people, many of whom were Gentiles, who sat in darkness, have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and the shadow of death, light has dawned. Jesus, having ministered in those more remote regions, he had only traveled to Jerusalem previously primarily to keep the feasts as the law had commanded. From the beginning of his ministry, Jesus did not come primarily to teach the religious leaders. Why not? Because they weren't open to being taught. In fact, most religious leaders today are not open to being taught. Most leaders of any kind are less likely to be open to Christian teaching than the kind of audience that Jesus primarily spoke to. Jesus' last pilgrimage to Jerusalem now that is about to occur would be to face his arrest and crucifixion. Actually, that was why he was born. In obedience to that command, he has come to set things in order before he departs. That would include his official acknowledgement by the people as their righteous and redeeming king, son of David, son of God. We'll actually talk more about Jesus as the son of David next week. So here's the summary which is found in your bulletin. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is significant not merely because it points to a future reign as king, but because it represents his actual receiving of the crown just prior to his death and resurrection. Now let's take a closer look at this passage and see what we can glean from it. In the opening few verses of this chapter, we are seeing preparations being made. So there was a preparation for Messiah's arrival. Now when they saw, I'm reading from verse 1 once again, when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent out two of his disciples told them to go into the city. As soon as you, you've entered it, you'll find a colt. Loose it and bring it to me. Tells them uh, that uh, if anyone asks, why are you doing this? To simply say that the Lord has need of it. And immediately they would send it. Then we're told that they went and uh, it was exactly as Jesus said to them. Now the details here are rather important. 
the entire event was predicted by the prophets. It was a fulfillment of Zechariah's great prophecy, uh, which was spoken to the Old Testament congregation. So let me ask you to turn there, if you would, to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah, second to the last book of the Old Testament. Quite often, uh, in many cases, looking ahead to the second coming, but I think, uh, in, but in many cases also, uh, with containing prophecies that look to the first coming. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now the Zechariah prophecy is not included in our account in the book of Mark. Mark was written, we believe, primarily for a Gentile audience. So the fulfillment of uh, of Old Testament scripture was a less important detail, at least uh, in that particular account. But it is declared in Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 21. You can turn there if you'd like. I'm just going to read verses 4 and 5 of Matthew 21. And uh, what we have just read about the preparations, the cult, and so on, uh, we are told in Matthew 21, verses 4 and 5, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying... Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, there are two details about this coronation, this Jesus coming as king, that almost seem to contradict each other. Because he's going to come, first of all, as a mighty king. The people, uh, Zechariah's prophecy says, were to watch for him. They were to behold him. They were to welcome him. Make a a respectful notice of him. Zechariah's prophecy says, Tell my people, the daughter of Zion, are God's people. God says to the prophet Zechariah, Behold him. Tell my people, behold him. It's a command for both attention and and admiration of their Redeemer who was yet to come. Now contrast, by the way, this call to behold your king with the words of Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate mockingly set Jesus in front of the people to be heckled and scorned while he said to the mocking crowd, Behold your king. Look at him. Mock him. Scorn him. He declares himself to be your king Yet here he is, sitting there in open shame. So he will come as a mighty king, but the contradiction appears, or the apparent contradiction, I should say, is that he would also come as a lowly king. He comes riding upon a donkey. Now when a king would come, something great and magnificent was to be expected, especially when he would come to take possession of his kingdom. Christ one day, of course, will 
claim that mantle, he will come and take full possession of what is rightfully his. But we are told in, uh, in, it, it, on this particular occasion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey. Now, why is that? Well, the reason is that at his first coming, he was coming in meekness, not in his majesty. He was coming not to, uh, in wrath, not to take vengeance. He was coming in mercy to bring salvation. He was coming, uh, uh, in that case, not on a stately horse that was more unapproachable, but he was coming on a donkey so that the poorest of his subjects would recognize that there was access to him. He came not so much high and lifted up on that occasion, but he came as easy to be entreated. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Matthew Henry said his government is mild and gentle and his laws not written in the blood of his subjects as other kings, but in his own blood. It's a great observation. So the first thing we notice about the preparation for the triumphal entry is that the event was predicted, it was prophesied, and then it was aptly fulfilled. That's merely just, that's just one of the ways in which uh, the Lord prepared his people for Christ's kingdom. We should also notice uh, on this occasion that the instrument was dedicated. The instrument was dedicated. Let me explain what I mean by that. Quite often in scripture, things that have great spiritual significance are described as being set apart for God's use alone. And that, it, that restriction could not be ignored or violated. Christ was an instrument that required a sanctification of a special kind. He was being set apart and dedicated for the work that he was about to do. Now think of some Old Testament examples where we see this special setting apart of certain things and that, uh, and that uh, setting apart could not be violated. Uh, the red heifer, for example. Now don't worry, I'm not going to go into a discourse on the red heifer and all, <laughs> everything that it means. But in Numbers chapter 19, which speaks of the red heifer, uh, that was a very special sacrificial animal whose blood was to be used for purification. And this is what the Lord says. He says, this is the ordinance of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring you a red heifer without blemish, in which there is no defect, and on which a yoke has never come. An animal on which a yoke has never come. Strange requirement. But the reason is that this is dedicated solely for God's use. The book of Joshua the children of Israel, after they crossed the Jordan, the first city that they encountered uh, in the land of Canaan was Jericho. And unlike other cities that they would later conquer, they were commanded not to take any spoil. Why not? Because the spoil of Jericho, the first city, was dedicated to God. It was called the accursed thing. Do not take of the accursed thing. So it was actually the accursed thing was actually, in a sense, the dedicated thing. That's why Achan, uh, when he took of that Babylonish garment, uh, he was dealt with so harshly for taking it and defiling it. Now, there are many other uh, Old Testament types like this. They, can't, they were not fully understood when they were given, but they pointed to Jesus 
as the one who was set apart and dedicated for a particular work. He would be placed in the womb of a virgin. He was worthy of a womb that had never been used, and it was fit for the Lord's use. Here in the account of the triumphal entry, the cult must be a cult upon which no one has ever sat, because it was reserved by God for sacred use and for that use only. And later, Luke chapter 23 and verse 53 describes the tomb in which Jesus' body would be laid after his crucifixion, and it is referred to as a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. See, those are important things. They're easy to pass over. The event was predicted. The instrument was dedicated. The third thing to notice about the preparations for Jesus' triumphal entry is that the participants on that occasion were made willing. Notice once again uh, Mark chapter 11 and verse 3. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Why are you loosing and taking the colt? Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there and said to them, what are you doing loosing the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, and so they let them go. Now the point is that everything the Lord had prepared to ensure that this event would be carried out exactly as he had told them, everything was within his control, even the willingness of its participants. It's remarkable what a display of sovereign power is evident in this little incident, once again, something that might easily be passed over. First of all, we see the Lord's need. We are told here they, they were to say, if anyone questioned what they were doing, they were to tell them that the Lord has need of it. Now that begs the question, of course, does the Lord actually have need of anything? He's the creator and sustainer of everything. So again, we're talking about instrumentality here. The use of earthly instruments to accomplish heavenly things. Certainly the Lord has the right to use anything he wishes. He is, after all, the maker of heaven and earth. And here he is asserting that right. But at least in this case, he chooses not to do it by force, but by inclining their wills. And notice how in this we see the Lord's power displayed. The disciples in verse 6 uh, speak to them just as Jesus commanded. They said, the Lord has need of him. And then it says in verse 6 that they let them go. They just let them go. Now, why would they just let them go? Well, some, I think especially those who are enamored of man's absolute free will, will say either that this is, a, a, this is merely God's foreknowledge, God knew that these particular individuals would be willing, and so Jesus would assure his disciples of it. Others will say that all of this was actually prearranged. Jesus and the disciples knew the owners of the cult. They had already agreed to offer the use of the cult, but there's no indication of that here whatsoever. In fact, the details, I think, speak against it, because if that were the case, why would the owners demand to know why they were loosing the cult? So as I think that's just another example of how uh, sovereignty skeptics sort of paint themselves into a corner, and then they have trouble getting out of it. I think Matthew Henry has it right when he says, Christ, in commanding the animal into his service, showed that he is a Lord of hosts, 
and in inclining, in inclining the owner to send them without further security, he showed that he is the God of the spirit of all flesh and can bend men's hearts. I think Matthew Henry uh, has it right in this case. So there was a preparation for Messiah's coming. Let's move on to our second point, and that is there was a proclamation of Messiah's kingdom. Let's notice the events that are described in verses 7 through 10, Mark 11 and verse 7. They brought the coal to Jesus. They threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Now Jesus here is coming to announce the kingdom that has been given to him by his father, but this is kind of a strange coronation, at least by worldly standards. In fact, uh, by worldly standards, it's almost laughable. And that's no accident, because it tells us something about the kingdom that Jesus had come to claim. First of all, it indicates that it was, at least to the world, an invisible kingdom. The kingdom of God is within you, Jesus said uh, to the people. Jesus is, uh, there, there is, there is a, a kingdom of God is being built sort of under the radar of this world. It's, it's invisible, but it's growing. It will come, uh, the, the time for it to be revealed will come at the appointed time. You remember that Jesus gave a number of parables about the kingdom starting very small and then, uh, and then growing almost uh, out of sight. The parable of the mustard seed, for example, and the parable of the leaven. It had as a, an invisible and uh, small beginning, but that kingdom ultimately would have a great and powerful finish. Take a look, you might want to take a look at Daniel chapter 2. Because it reminded me of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar's dream, you might remember, was actually seen and interpreted by Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 31, Daniel says, You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. That great image who, whose splendor was excellent stood before you and its form was awesome. He goes on to describe this image which really is a representation of human kingdoms, human power. Notice, jump down to verse 34. Daniel says, You watched while a, while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image, representing the glory of human kingdoms, it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. And then jump down uh, to, I think, verse uh, 36. It says that the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the earth. So this kingdom that Jesus says begins as a mustard seed, the tiniest of all seeds. And yet it grows in, uh, into what Daniel describes as a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. It will not appear threatening to the world even at times. It will be set up in the, in the days of other kings. Other kings will reign and they will 
uh, exhibit their power and they will claim their power in various ways. But regardless of what they do, the human rulers, the kingdom of Christ will continue. It will continue to flourish. It will grow. Uh, The world may not see it and recognize it for what it is, but it will continue until the time of the end. The kings of the world won't understand because that kingdom is not of this world. So it's described here in Matthew 11, not with great pomp and displays of power, uh, that this kingdom that Jesus has come to uh, claim uh, the crown for is not going to be of this world. Uh, There were no heralds at arms provided, as Matthew Henry says. There was no trumpet that was sounded before him. There were no chariots of state. There were no glorious and powerful steeds. This coronation reflected Jesus' present state at that time of humiliation. He had come in humiliation the first time, and therefore he rode on a donkey and not a horse. The donkey was a lowly beast of burden, one that was used ultimately for travel, not generally for coronations. Horses were kept only by great men, for display and for war. But Jesus comes riding on a donkey's colt, not just a donkey, but a donkey's colt, rough, ungroomed, clumsy, unstately. And in fact, this colt was borrowed also. Just as Jesus, if you think about it, he went up, uh, he went upon the water in a borrowed boat. Jesus ate the Passover in a borrowed chamber. He was buried in a borrowed sepulcher. He rode on a borrowed colt. Colt. Just think about all that. So this kingdom uh, was going to be uh, invisible to the world for the most part, but it was awaited by God's people. To the world, it's largely invisible, but to God's people, it's the blessed hope that we are waiting for and watching for. Where were the rich and powerful on this occasion of the triumphal entry? Well, we know that they had spies there because their spies complained as soon as the people cried out, especially the children cried out in praise of the coming king. So we know that the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they had their spies there, their mockers and detractors. But for the most part, on this occasion, the elites were absent kind of fits in with what Paul says about the church in general. Not many mighty are called, not many noble, not many wise. On this occasion that we're reading about in Mark chapter 11, Zion's king had come to Zion. The biblical scholars had been told of his coming long before, but yet on this occasion, he's not attended by the noblemen of the country. He's not met by the magistrates of the city with all of their formalities. No one presented him with the keys to the city or invited him to the gatherings of the high and mighty. None of that. None of that happened on this occasion. Within the week, in fact, the chief priests and the elders would gladly stir up and join with the ignorant multitude that would hang him on the cross. But they were not with this multitude. We wouldn't have found most of them here joining with this multitude that had come to pay him honor. Notice also how those who did honor him that day showed their respect. 
We just read that in verses 7 through 10. We're told that they spread their garments for him. It was a common practice in that day. Some suggest that they perhaps hung their garments along the hedges uh, to make tapestry in honor of him. Possibly that's what it means here, or at least that's a part of it. It has been suggested by some that clothing, because clothing is worn close to the body, represents the heart where Christ is to dwell, and so perhaps that's why they were spreading their garments along the way. We're told that on this occasion, others took branches of palm trees and strewed them on the road for him, something that was done, in fact, during the Feast of Tabernacles. We talked about that when we studied uh, Revelation uh, chapter 7, uh, the uh, salvation of Christ being a, a, the ultimate celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles, uh, that annual feast that the Jews uh, participated in, was a, was a token of liberty, victory, joy, salvation. Uh, just as Zechariah in chapter 14 and verse 6 declared uh, that would be done in the time of the Messiah. The Feast of Tabernacles would be, in a sense, fulfilled the prophecy uh, that it was based upon would ultimately find its fulfillment. And what else did they do on that day uh, that the triumphal entry was carried out? Well, they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, simply means save us now. This was also prophesied. Uh, Take a look at Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a psalm about their Messiah's appearance. And in fact, it includes a description of how those who were watching and waiting for him would respond to his coming. Notice, beginning in verse 21. The psalmist says, I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Now, people often will say that on any given day. It's the day the Lord has made, and that's fine. But I think in this psalm, it means something much deeper than that. I believe that it refers here to the day of the Messiah's appearing. And on that day, it says in verse uh, 24, we will rejoice and be glad in it. And then it says, and here's our Hosanna. Uh, it's, 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 they say, I'm sorry. Turn my page here. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And then verse 25 says, save now, I pray. Save now. In Hebrew, it is Yasha Na, Hosanna. Save now. I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see how this is looking forward to uh, the coronation, the coming of Messiah to receive his well-deserved crown. And as he appears... They're crying out, save us now, save us now. Just as we feel waiting for his appearing a second time, 
looking at the world around us, closing in, targeting God's people, <clears throat> not respecting the things of God. And we find ourselves saying, Lord, save us now. Save us now. Tribulation is difficult, especially during times of uh, great apostasy, which is, I think, a time that we're living in now. Now, notice several things in the Psalm 118 that we have in front of us. First of all, we should notice his rejection. He is the stone, uh, in verse 22, that the builders rejected. As a matter of fact, he's still the stone that the builders reject. He's rejected by all but a few. He's scorned by the intelligent and the mighty. He's mocked by those who do not have or will not have this king to reign over them. Yet, we are told in verse 22, that he is the chief cornerstone. He is Lord and Savior, verse 21 says. You have become my salvation. He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and therefore they cry out in faith, Lord, save us now. I always have to ask this question, what will you do with Jesus Christ? I can't give you a magic formula like perform this act of submission and you'll be saved. Pray this prayer, this sinner's prayer, and you'll be saved. Attend this church, join a particular religious organization, and you're all set. I can say what the Bible says. I can say with confidence and faith, salvation is in him. And it is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. If he is the king and the savior, then of course the response must be, follow him. If he is who he claimed he was, we must follow him. Come and be saved. You and all the ends of the earth. Blessed are all of those who put their trust in him. There was a preparation for the Messiah's coming on that day and then a proclamation of the Messiah's kingdom. And last but certainly not least of all, let's look at our third point, and that is that there was a presentation for Messiah's crucifixion. A presentation for Messiah's crucifixion. Now in the book of Exodus, I'm sure we're aware that the Passover lamb was to be slain just before the children of Israel were taken out of Egypt. Passover had significant meaning, significant typological meaning. It pointed to Christ. It had to be done exactly as God commanded. It had to be a spotless lamb, a male without blemish, representing Christ as the Lamb of God, who, because of his sinful character, was the only one who would qualify to take away sins. The blood of that lamb was to be applied to the doorposts, so that the death angel would slay all of the firstborn, uh, who would slay all of the firstborn, would pass over those houses where the blood had been applied. And thereby the children of Israel would be saved by the blood, representing, of course, the blood of Christ. Now that Old Testament type or foreshadow was fulfilled when Christ was crucified on the cross. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. For that reason, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 says that indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed 
for us. But there's another detail in the Exodus story uh, that relates directly to the triumphal entry story that we're studying. The Passover lamb was to be chosen and presented on the 10th day of the month and sacrificed on the 14th day. It has been pointed out that the triumphal entry in this passage takes place five days before his death. On that day, Christ, our Passover, who was to be sacrificed for us, was displayed publicly. We might say that this event, the triumphal entry, was the prelude to his passion. Christ, our Passover. And there's one more thing I'd like to point out this morning, and that is the Lord in his temple, and we see that in Mark 11 and verse 11. So let's take a look at that verse one more time. Tells us in verse 11 that Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Interesting that Christ, after his triumphal entry, goes directly to the temple. There's a remarkable prophecy, I'm sure you're familiar with it, but turn with me to Malachi, book of Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. And let's take a look at this prophecy in chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. And this tells us how the Lord in the days of the Messiah will come to his temple. It says in verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. And by the way, when it says in whom you delight, I believe it's quite clear that the Lord is being sarcastic here. They were not known for people who delighted in the messenger of the covenant or in the Lord. He goes on to say, Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Now here's a question. Is Mark chapter 11 and verse 11, where Jesus comes into the temple, is that a fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 3? Well, it's a good question. Dispensationalism tends to see Malachi's prophecy as pertaining primarily to the second coming of Christ. I was uh, tuning a piano in a United Methodist church just a few days ago, and I happened to pick up... Um, <clears throat> copy of their church bulletin. They were all printed and ready to go for Sunday, for Palm Sunday. And it had a little reading in there based on Mark 11 and verse 11 that it sort of implied that if the Lord were to come and look around in their church, that he would be pleased by what he saw because they were coming to worship him. Well, of course, we desire for the Lord to see us as we gather on the Lord's Day every week. And we want him to be pleased. We desire for him to be pleased. We beg that we might uh, behave and speak in such a way that he would be pleased. But 
I don't think that's at all the meaning uh, that is suggested in Mark 11 and verse 11. Matthew Henry, I think, is probably more accurate when he says that Jesus came to the temple and took a view of the present state of it. He looked around about upon all things, but as yet said nothing. He saw many disorders there, but he kept silence. And then Matthew Henry gives Psalm 50 and verse 21. Now, Psalm 50 is a psalm of judgment against the people for their show of religion while at the same time perverting his judgments. So I think what Matthew Henry is suggesting is that Jesus is not walking into their temple and looking around pleased with what he saw. He was about to be crucified by the same people who kept that temple and ordered it and carried out uh, the religious uh, ceremonies there. Kind of interesting if you look at uh, the account of uh, that Luke gives of the triumphal entry, and I'll ask you to turn to the verses that come after Luke's description of the triumphal entry. Turn to uh, Luke chapter 19. And here we are told that as he drew near, so this is right after the, the triumphal entry, And then it says, now as he drew near, verse 41, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day. You see the emphasis that Jesus is putting on this particular uh, occasion, the triumphal entry? This is your day. The king that was promised and prophesied back in the Old Testament, the son of David, he came to you this day. He rode through your streets and only a few poor people came and did him the honor that he deserves. So he says in verse 42, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the, the time of your visitation. He's speaking there, I believe, of 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple. Malachi's prophecy that we just read, I believe, signifies the end of the old covenant, the last vestiges of a failing national Israel, of a sacrificial system that was insufficient to actually provide salvation for the people. That was coming to an end. Many of the the Jews in general were holding to the old covenant, but they didn't want, they refused to embrace the new. Malachi is prophesying the end of the old covenant and the beginning of the new that would be ushered in, particularly, I think, with the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost. That would accomplish God's work in the soul of man. Israel would become a spiritual nation. The earthly nation would fall. It would be, in a sense, it would go into captivity. They would be scattered to all nations. The true Israel would become a spiritual nation. And by that means, the Lord would purify the sons of Levi 
that they might offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. So there's a lot there to, I think, explore, obviously. A lot of meaning in the triumphal entry, I think, that needs to be studied out in much more detail. But let's draw to a close this morning. We're out of time. And I would just ask once again, where are you with Christ? What about you today? Let me leave you with a couple of challenges that I find in this passage. The triumphal entry. There's an emphasis on grace. We can see in this passage how Christ comes in mercy, humble, riding upon a lowly animal. He receives the the strewing of palms in keeping with the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a picture of salvation and God's providence for his people. Jesus presents himself as the Passover lamb who will save his people from their sins. But there's also an emphasis on judgment. There's an emphasis on grace, absolutely. But there's an emphasis on judgment. The Lord will suddenly come to his temple and for those unprepared to meet him, he was coming in judgment. Belief in Jesus can't be separated uh, from a turning from sin and the dedication of a holy life. Still, there's grace. For without it, not a single one of us would stand a chance of being saved if it ever depended on our own works. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, Therefore, purge out the old leaven, Paul says, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But also behold the one who came as a lowly babe in a manger. He was crowned king, He returned to heaven glorified and he it is who will return to claim what is rightfully his, this world and everything in it. Hosanna, Lord, save us now. Blessed is he who comes. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, once again, uh, we are thankful for this passage and other uh, writers of scripture who uh, wrote of it prophetically and uh, who included it in their gospel accounts. Lord, your word is powerful. Uh, It speaks with a particular power that the Holy Spirit uh, gives to it. And dear Lord, I pray that we might, by the Holy Spirit, understand what it means for us. Lord, there's no full understanding, full comprehension of anything that you have given us. But we come, dear Lord, today once again humbly, desiring that you would teach us from this passage as well as others that we've considered. And I pray, dear Lord, that the Spirit of God would apply these things to our hearts today. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.